Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rob Parker, lead pastor at The Plant Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make him known. If you are interested in getting connected or if we can help you in any way, email us at info at theplantchurch.org. Open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And uh, why don't we jump right in to read this this morning. And, and we're going to read the, the Palm Sunday narrative out of Mark's gospel. And Mark writes this, as Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing on the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the, king, uh, the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heaven. And so Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. And after looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that uh, we would welcome you this morning, that we would welcome you uh, not, not just with our words, not just with our, our actions, but with our very hearts and our minds, that this morning we would receive you just as you are, not as we envision you to be. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that this morning your spirit would speak to us You'd minister to us, that you would teach us, that you would guide us. Holy Spirit, as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, I, I have been reading a, a biography lately for the past couple of months, and I, I'm going to use an example from this book, I think, uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, because it's just so great. But I've been reading a, a biography about the life of Ulysses S. Grant. And uh, if you're familiar with the Hamilton musical uh, at all, the, any, any fans of the Hamilton? I know the Nyes are fans of the Hamilton musical. Yeah. Some other, some other Hamilton. No one's a No? Okay. A couple, couple people. Not a, not a big Broadway crowd. That's okay. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda based 
his uh, Hamilton musical on a biography of Hamilton that was written by this gentleman named Ron Chernow. And Ron Chernow also wrote a really large biography on Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, so I'm slowly making my way through that because it's nearly a thousand pages, uh, very, very slowly. Uh, and, but he, he presents a really interesting guy in Ulysses S. Grant. He, he shares that Grant is one of those presidents that is just kind of misunderstood in U.S. history for a lot of reasons. And he, he really, after doing his research, he found that to maybe not be as true as people thought. Uh, but, but one thing about Grant that, that really has struck me reading this is how uh, unassuming he was and how unimpressive he was. He was not the guy that everyone thought was leading the, uh, the, the Union war effort during the Civil War. Maybe I should have started with that and not just assumed everyone who knows who Ulysses S. Grant is. Um, the, the, the president, uh, of the, he was two-term president of the United States, but he was also the general who was overseeing all of the Union war effort during the Civil War. And, and he did not come uh, by that, uh, obviously, and we'll talk more about that, that part of the story next week. But I, I think Grant's life is, is a great example for what we want to talk about this morning. Because he, he was not the, the three-star general, which was the highest general rank at the time. Uh, he was not the kind of figure that you'd associate with that. He wasn't uh, tall and, and dashing. And generals at the time, they were weird at the time. They would like have feathers in their caps, some of them. And, and they, they just kind of had this like really dignified kind of air about them. They wanted to look impressive. These generals wanted to be impressive. And, and uh, Grant was the first three-star general since George Washington. In, in the United States Army. So it was a really big deal when Congress authorized them to add this rank. And so everyone's hearing about all this work Grant had done in, in the Western theater of the Civil War. And now he's been put in charge of the whole Union Army. And there's not as many photographs, obviously. The internet doesn't exist back then. The, uh, pictures and newspapers of him don't, aren't really that common yet. And so all of these people, when they heard Grant was coming in town, even congressmen, uh, people that were part of, of the, the White House, staff, people who are part of the War Department, famous polit other famous politicians, business leaders, all these people. They hear Grant's coming to be in New York. He's going to be in D.C. Everyone is tripping over themselves to meet Grant. And, and they would see, there's a, one story that Chernow tells is that uh, Grant and his entourage of his staff arrive at this one location. And all of these politicians are tripping over themselves to be the, the first one to shake Grant's hand and introduce themselves. Because they, they, they want, everyone wants to get their moment with him so they can be associated with him. There's so much like political kind of elbowing and, and stuff. And Grant just like hated all of that. He was so turned off by it, so annoyed by it. He, he, was, he had no interest in, in politics in, in, in this way, in, in, the, in the pandering kind of way. And so there's this one story where all these people, they, they run up to introduce themselves to Grant, and this one politician goes right to him, and he shakes his hand, and he's saying, General Grant, it is such an honor to meet you, except he was shaking the hand of uh, General Grant's chief surgeon, because he was the most impressive looking tallest man. And this short little kind of funny looking guy over on the side. That obviously was one of his staffers. Maybe he handled like logistics or something in the background. This is clearly General Grant. And General Grant would just kind of chuckle to himself. 
at, at when they say he had a good sense of humor and he just thought it was funny and he wouldn't incorrect them. He just kind of let them think they met Grant and then they would like walk off and then his, his chief surgeon would be embarrassed and he's like, I'm so sorry, sir. And he just thought it was funny. He had a good sense of humor. But time and time again, people had these false expectations of who General Grant was supposed to be. These false expectations of what they thought made an incredible general. And, and, and there, it had so much to do with how they looked and how they postured and presented themselves and so little to do with who they actually were. And I think this story illuminates something about this famous story of Jesus coming to Jerusalem. Because in many ways, he is everything that people expect him to be, but in so many ways, he is completely other than was expected. Jesus often shows up in so many unexpected ways in our lives too. And, and I, I think kind of like what happened with Grant and, and what we'll see happen with Jesus, I believe that we easily miss welcoming Jesus because we're looking for the wrong things. And so Jesus wants to make sure that we are aware who he really is so that we can say, there you are, Jesus. I know I'm welcoming you and I'm not welcoming someone who fits my vision of who you are. I, I know in my life when I have uh, expectations about what Jesus is supposed to do or how he's supposed to work or who he's supposed to be in a specific moment, I, I, and I keep looking for it and I get angry at him, because I'm asking for this or I'm praying for this or I'm expecting him to work in a, in a situation or in a relationship in a particular way. And he's not working that way at all. And I go, Jesus isn't showing up. And all the while, he's showing up in very unexpected ways, very different ways. And I miss him completely. Anyone ever experienced that in their life? I find that's true so often. It is so challenging sometimes to welcome Jesus because he does not present himself often in the way that we would readily uh, see him and experience him easily in our culture or even in our church culture. He is, he is so different. As we have been talking about in this, in this next theme in the book of Mark, upside down. He is so, his kingdom is so upside down and so different, right? We, we talked about which, which Jesus is it that we're actually following? And, and then last week we, we talked about uh, how, who is really the greatest. This upside down idea of it, it's the weakest, it's the least of these. It's children that when we welcome these unexpected people, we welcome the very presence of Jesus to be among us. Jesus is working in these unexpected ways. And if we're not paying attention, if we bring our expectations, our agenda to the table, we run the risk of missing Jesus completely and welcoming someone else. Usually it's uh, a, a, a version of ourself or, or it's a version of Jesus that looks a lot like uh, the things that are, work perfectly for our lives and maybe inconvenience others. So what I want to talk about today is I, I want to look at this text and, and I just want to dive into a little bit about how, how did they expect Jesus to show up? What did that look like? How did they see Jesus and, and, and get it right? And how, did, how are some ways that they missed it and got it wrong? And, and what can we learn? What are some ways in our lives uh, that we easily can have expectations of Jesus that are, that are unrealistic or not who he really is and, and, and run the risk of 
welcoming him. So I, I hope this is uh, straightforward and practical for us this morning. So just to give you a, a little bit of context, th- this is essentially Jesus, Jesus is looked at in this story, and Mark is kind of okay with the way he writes this story as modeling Jesus a little bit uh, like he fits the, the political or military expectations of the Jews of Jesus' day. Let me, let me explain what I mean. Jesus enters Jerusalem and, or excuse me, he's on his way to Jerusalem, right? The crowds are, are celebrating, they're whooping and hollering, and they're waving these palm branches, and they're shouting Hosanna, and they're laying garments down at his feet. And, and all of these things that Mark uh, lists off are, are incredibly symbolic, and they mean a lot to the, the readers in the original context, or the, the Jews of this first century. They would have known all of kind of the nuance of what this means. Uh, when we read the Bible, we can often miss that because we don't live in that culture, right? Uh, but if someone like, you know, a thousand years from now read something from now, and I, they somehow got a hold of a text message uh, from, from me, and you're going off to a job interview, and I just texted you, may the force be with you. Uh, you know, what are they going to think? Oh, they, they believed that there was some kind of force that they were, this must have been some, some kind of religion or, or something that people followed in that day. No, like someone's making a joke because about Star Wars. Right? So, so in their day and age, they had their own kind of words, like uh, keywords, uh, buzzwords, things that they, they knew. There's a whole history. There's a whole symbolism. There's a whole thing behind that. It's more than just the words on the page. Does that make sense? So just to paint the picture for you, a few of these things. I think we have this slide on the screen. Jesus' uh, arrival fits this uh, expectation of a political and, and military leader. In a number of ways. They were waiting, as I've said the last two weeks, they're expecting the Messiah, the one who's going to bring this kingdom, overthrow the Romans, liberate them. They're going to establish a sovereign nation, a new government, and they've been waiting and longing for this. Some of the things that Mark references are straight out of other references of kingly figures. Uh, Solomon entered Jerusalem on his father David's mule when he was being coronated and crowned as king. Uh, Jehu, who was one of the kings in in Judah, the the people spread garments across the road when he was being anointed king. These were signs to show your political allegiance. When you threw your garment down on the road like that over someone who was entering a city, usually the, the, the connotation is they're entering as a conquering ruler and you laying your garment down showed I am giving you my political allegiance my allegiance is to you and to no one else so so this is like a little bit problematic you imagine these people throwing garments down with with the Roman garrison right there and the governor that was sent from Rome kind of looking on from the fort this is a little problematic what they're doing in this moment for them Uh, Another uh, buzzword or or thing that's happening in this, uh, Mark uses this language uh, that's used here about Jesus riding in on a donkey. And and it is almost exactly verbatim some of the words used in Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, talking about uh, this this Davidic uh, Messiah-type figure who was going to ride in to Jerusalem lowly and on a donkey. 
And, and uh, Matthew and, and Matthew's story about this riding into Jerusalem and in John's, they actually specifically mention Zechariah specifically. And so, so this is a really, really loaded thing that's happening that Mark is describing. This, this has a lot of political connotations. It's checking a lot of boxes for the people of Jerusalem and for the Jews. And they're like, okay, this is really interesting. This, this might be the guy. And then just to add a layer on top of that, about 80 to 100 years before, I think if I got my dates right and I did my math right, um, there, there was someone else called Simon of Maccabees who, who actually was able to conquer uh, Judea and specifically Jerusalem. He was able to conquer it from the, the Greeks in that area who were ruling at the time, so about 100 years before. You guys love this history lesson this morning, don't you? All right, some of you do. Some of you are like eyes glazed over already. This is going somewhere. So about 100 years before, the thing that, that, that Israel was waiting for, a Messiah that would establish a new government and rulership and all that, it kind of happened the way they thought. Simon Maccabees and his sons, they revolted against the, the Greek dynasty that was there. They overthrew them and they captured Jerusalem and, and they marched into Jerusalem. Simon Maccabees came in with uh, the sound of music, of praise, of, of harps, of tambourines, and palm branches. And the palm branches actually were minted onto a coin in his honor to show to, and to mark that, that this was the, the reign of the Messiah. Sadly, Simon died. His sons squabbled a bit, couldn't really keep the kingdom together, and then soon after that, Rome swept in and took everything over again. And they thought they'd, they'd had it, but they'd lost. So, so throwing, hold up your palm branches real quick if you have them. These palm branches being waved around that morning or that day were, were a highly, highly, uh, this was like going out there with like a political like picket sign at the, for them. This was a very, very significant thing they were doing. Now, some of you, that makes you uncomfortable. Some of you are like, great, sounds good. It doesn't matter where you fall on that. Like, this is kind of what was happening. They were waving these. This had high, highly symbolic, kind of loaded uh, situation here. And they're, they're looking at this going like, there's a, there's a lot of uh, things they're saying about who this Jesus guy is. And that Mark is saying from this. So all these puzzle pieces kind of go together to, you can put your palms down if you're still holding them up. Um, all these puzzle pieces go together to, to create this image of this victorious, powerful Messiah who is about to sweep in and bring this military uh, conquest to this place. The problem is Jesus also did not fit their expectations. You know what he did right before this whole story? He had just healed a blind man in Jericho. And he'd healed a lot of people who were beggars, blind people, very sick. They had no power, no influence. Definitely not strong enough or, or trained to be soldiers. And they're all following him along this road from Jericho. This is his army he's coming with. And they're the ones that are celebrating that this is the Messiah. Going like... Here, here's the one that's going to save us. Here's the one that's going to save us. And they're not up for a fight, folks. And, and to make it even more uh, 
pronounced. Jesus would have, if he was a kin, king riding in in victory in wartime, he would have uh, come in on a horse. But instead he comes in on a donkey, which was a sign of peace. It was a sign of peace. It was a sign that he was not there to destroy, but bring peace. Funny enough, uh, when uh, Simon Maccabeus entered into Jerusalem, he expelled anyone who was non-Jewish. He kicked them out, told them they had to get out. He was very violent about it. He, in, in, in their words, and you can read about this in, in the book of Maccabees, they, it's a historical book. Uh, they, they just completely got rid of anyone so they could purify Jerusalem. As we'll see in another story that we won't get to this week, uh, we, we won't get to in this series, but Jesus, right after this, looks around the temple and he's gonna come back the next day and he's also going to purify the temple. Except, except he kicks out everyone who is trying to extort people out of money. He, 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 extorts, he kicks out anyone who is there with any kind of nationalistic, Jewish-centric agenda. And he says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. So he actually does the exact opposite thing that Simon the Maccabees is about to do. Pastor, what does this have to do with me and my life? As we've talked about in this series and some other things, can we just put that next slide up of how Jesus did not fit these expectations? As I've already mentioned, including some of the things that we've taught in this series, Jesus didn't fit expectations of what this Messiah was going to look like, as I've said. Suffering and rejection. He said, take up your cross and follow me like I'm going to take up a cross. Make sure you're the servant of everyone else. Be willing to endure persecution. This was not what they expected. In fact, uh, one uh, biblical scholar says about this, that, this celebration was, were, was essentially, uh, from a historical perspective, these were pilgrims coming to prepare for the Passover. And what would be normally appropriate is to at least have the chief priests welcome these pilgrims who have made this journey from the northern part of, of Israel, Jews from the north around Galilee, it would have been very appropriate for them to welcome pilgrims as they were coming in for the Passover. Like 300,000 pilgrims would be coming for the Passover. So the population of Jerusalem was swelling leading up to Passover. And, and this scholar says this, he says that Jesus should have at least gotten a greeting from the chief priest once they arrived in the temple because he goes right in the gate that leads to the temple. And, and, and the fact that he didn't says a lot because it just sort of ends. He looks around the temple and he goes back to Bethany. But the point is what didn't happen. There was no welcoming committee. Not simply because he was the Messiah, that would have been nice, but you typically would invite pilgrims and there was none of that. And so this scholar goes on to say, since this messianic kingdom that Jesus brings is, is completely different, it's not the sovereign, prospering kingdom that the Jewish people were expecting. He says, it's not surprising that Jesus isn't welcomed when he enters Jerusalem and visits the temple. Jesus himself was about to warn the, the chief priests, the teachers of the law in the temple over the next few chapters. He was going to warn them and be wary to not let people's expectations get in the way of welcoming him and welcoming what God was doing. 
He would say, you need to be careful not to let your power, your greed, your, your selfish ambition, your, your need for success, your need for comfort, you can't let that blind you from welcoming me as I come. And so this is really why this matters to us. This is a story that's often told and we, and we hear it and they wave the palm branches and we, we talk about Jesus being here. But, but really, I wonder how many of us take the time to reflect as I've been reflecting on this. Uh, what are the expectations that we have of Jesus that are not actually Jesus? And how might those be prohibiting us from welcoming Jesus? Where are we missing Jesus like the chief priests and those in Jerusalem? just want to list a few very, very briefly. Because I, I don't have a, this isn't a, a sermon where I convince you that uh, you have these false expectations or I have these false expectations, but I want to just present some, some thoughts about what could be our false expectations that keep us from being able to welcome Jesus. Jesus well. Uh, the first one, just to go right along with, with what Jesus actually experienced, was do we have uh, political expectations of Jesus? Uh, do, we, do we have expectations uh, that Jesus is going to do something uh, politically or, or maybe more accurately uh, partisan or long partisan lines in our day and age? It's really fascinating to, to watch the news or watch friends of mine that fall on all sorts of uh, areas on the political spectrum, and, and many of them Christians, and they claim Jesus for their particular platform or their particular thing. And I, I wonder, like, man, how much of that is them putting expectations on Jesus instead of them receiving the, the real thing and meeting the real Jesus? I'm still struck by what happened a few years ago, the riots and storming the Capitol building during the certification of the election alongside the violence that took place. I was shocked at how many signs I saw raised in the air that said, Jesus saves. Literally, Hosanna. It's, it's the words of Palm Sunday in the air as this violence took place. How many of our political agendas uh, and expectations do we place on Jesus that he simply does not share with us? Left, right, and center, doesn't matter where it is. And we miss Jesus in, in the tension and, and the complexity of who he really is. And we kind of make it too easy and simplify it by saying, here it is, or here it is, or here it is. So perhaps that's a, an expectation that keeps you from welcoming Jesus. We also might have material expectations. I, 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 Jesus needs to, to bless me if, if I don't, and sometimes we're uh, explicit with this, we, or sometimes it's just kind of in the back of our mind. If I'm not seeing blessing, whether it's financial or material or something like that, Jesus must not care about me. Or if I'm not experiencing uh, certain successes in my life, then maybe I don't have enough faith and I need to do something different. We put these expectations on Jesus. If I do this, Jesus will give me this. What kind of expectations do you put on Jesus around um, your material life? Kind of connected to that is, is our comfort. What kind of expectations do we have with Jesus around our Comfort. I think this is particularly important for 
us and the world we live in because relative to Christians, no matter what your income is, uh, relative to Christians at any other time in human history, American Christians are the wealthiest segment of the church in all of the church's history. We've never had more money. And, and that goes, it doesn't matter how little you, you make or how much you make. It, it, across the board, the, the, the studies have been done to show how little Christians made uh, throughout history in other parts of the world compared to how much we have today. And, and often, material comforts, financial comforts, uh, and the belief that we are owed something because of the culture we live in get in the way of welcoming Jesus. Sometimes it's not material comfort. Sometimes uh, we're, we're all kind of pain avoidant. I don't want to deal with the pain in my life. That's too, I can't go there. I can't deal with the past. I don't want to deal with that thing. Uh, it, it's, it's uh, as I love Pete Scazzaro's language on this, like we treat pain and loss and grief like a foreign alien invasion. Like, what's that doing there? Get away. I just need to trust Jesus, I guess. When Jesus is actually inviting us to work in us, he wants to work in us through seasons of pain, through grief, through loss, but because we're so focused on Jesus providing us comfort, we tend to shy away from those things. A little less obvious, but connected to a lot of these and something we talked about in the last couple of weeks, uh, what could our expectation be around uh, what, what the Bible calls the least of these? Do we expect much when we're with children? Do we expect Jesus to show up when we're with the poor? When we're with foreigners, as the Bible puts it, as uh, ethnic cultural minorities, those on the edges of society? Do we expect much from, from Jesus showing up among strangers, people who can't really do anything for us? Do we expect much from people in jail? That's what you call prisoners. And, and Jesus says about all these groups of people, when you fed me when I was one of those people, when you closed me, when you gave me something to drink, you, you thank you for doing that for me. And they, we talked about this last week. They're saying, Jesus, we didn't do any of that for you. No, let me tell you, when you did something like that for the least of these, children, poor, foreigners, cultural, ethnic minorities, strangers, people in jail, when you did something like that for them, you did it for me. When you welcomed children, I was there being welcomed in their midst. And, can, and, and this is so upside down. When, when, we, when we come to expecting Jesus, man, I, I, I remember being in a, a worship and prayer room um, when I was in college. And, and I remember being in this, this space. They had like 24-7 worship and prayer. And they would just like had all these prayer meetings and worship stuff all the time. And I remember seeing, you know, I don't know their story. So I, I want to be like gentle in, in, in this. And I want to judge too harshly. Uh, but, or if at all. But I just remember this moment of this woman. Like she was worshiping and praying. And I saw her son, maybe eight years old, trying to get her attention. And she just kept like, Ignoring him, ignoring him, ignoring him, ignoring him. And he like, just seemed like he really needed something, like I need to go to the bathroom or whatever. And, and there was such a sense of like, I can't miss this moment with God. And in the process actually didn't welcome the little child right there who Jesus says, when you welcome them, you welcome me. And moments like that have stuck with me because we have such an expectation on this hyper-spiritual moment, this thing that looks really pious and religious, or, or this thing that, that looks really important for God or for church. This is where Jesus wants to, to meet me, and I'm expecting him here. And, and suddenly Jesus is saying, 
No, I'm actually present when you welcome children, when you welcome those who can't do anything for you, when, when you welcome the weak, when you welcome those that are in jail, when you welcome strangers, the minority ethnic cultural groups around you. So all of, all of these things that I've, I've, I've mentioned here, political expectations, material expectations, our, our comfort expectations, things we do because we're not considering the least of these. All of these are false expectations we put on Jesus. And I wonder how you and I are missing welcoming Jesus when these expectations get in the way. So like I said, this was really simple this morning because what I want to do is I, I want to give us just a moment for the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Because this is not something for Pastor Andrew to come around the room and say, here's your false expectations. Here's your false expectations. This is something for the Holy Spirit to speak to you on and invite you into. This is something for Jesus himself to begin to work out in you. And then you can bring it to other people, bring it to community who can help you walk it out. But, but here's what I want to do is just ask you, do you have expectations that are keeping you from welcoming Jesus in some aspect of your life? Political, material, comfort, thoughts of status versus the, the least of these. So we're just going to take a moment, and I, I just want you to invite you to be still before the Lord. And then I'm going to in, invite you to, to take an action step this morning if, if you're sensing Jesus' invitation. So just bow your head for a moment. We have a, we have a, a saying in our denomination here, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, when it comes to encountering the presence of God, particularly as we talk about the Holy Spirit and, and welcoming his presence and, and, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are talked about in Scripture, we have, we have a statement that we use that I, I think is helpful for this moment, and it's simply this. We have expectation without agenda. We're not going to throw our agendas on Jesus, but we are expectant that he's going to come somehow. He wants to meet us somehow. We're just not going to tell him what it looks like. And so for a moment, could the Spirit be speaking to you about an agenda, about a false expectation you have upon Jesus? Go ahead, just take a moment and let the Spirit speak to you. It was great having you with us today. We do hope that this sermon inspired you to know Christ and make him known. For more sermons and resources, please visit us at theplantchurch.org.